It's time for Tin Pan Tiddly Doo with Haley, Rose, and Blues. We'll talk about musicals from the past and the score and the culture and cast. From the early days of theater to the modern renaissance. Be it wild, experimental, or the same old song and dance. We've got trivia behind the scenes and everything you want. And our personal input to the things that make us happy. That make us blue. <laughs> nice. The stuff that's vapid and sappy. And the moments that shine through, shine through. Why not sit on down for an hour or two as we edutain you? Come and satisfy your craving for a podcast with possess. The audience is raving for the content this one has. And since the intro's nearly through, welcome to Tin Pan Diddly Doo. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and variations thereupon. Welcome back to Tin Pan Diddly Doo, a stupidly named musical theater history podcast. I'm your director, Lily Blue. And I'm your gaffer girl, Haley Rose. Haley, we've been over this. Gaffer girls don't exist in musical theater. Well, I don't know anything about musical theater. We've, we've gone over this. That's why we're doing this. Okay. I don't know. I don't know about, like, like, the, the lesser-known plays. I don't know about... Mm-hmm. I don't know about the, some of the bigger plays. I sure don't know about the big directors and the big composers. Sure. Like, you know, I know Rodgers and Hammerstein and um, Sweet Boy. <laughs> sweet Boy? <laughs> yeah, Sweet Boy. You mean Lin-Manuel Miranda? That's him. Sweet Boy. <laughs> Sweet boy. <laughs> Sweet boy. Oh my oh. god. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot. I, I'm bad with names and I forgot. <laughs> Sweet boy? <laughs> he is. He's a Who were you thinking boy. of? Were you really thinking was, of Lynn? I wasn't thinking of Lynn. I was no. gonna get to Lynn. I was thinking of um Sweet Boy. <laughs> the guy who's who Sweetie Sweetie Boy. Um Oh uh, Steven Sondheim. That's him. Sweet boy. <laughs> but when okay. you brought up Lynn as an option to be who I meant as sweet boy, like obviously Of course Lynn. he's sweet boy. He's sweet boy. So we got we got gay boys, we got mean boy. We've got um we've got cat's boy. We got furry boy. Mm-hmm. So we have furry boy, furry boy slash bible boy. Um okay. gay boys. Yeah. Um, Dark and Moody Boy and Sweet Boy. But that's it. That's all the boys. Surely no women. (laughs) Surely, surely no women. Now, at some point, we'll get to talking about some of my favorite female composers because there are a few of them. They just don't get as much attention as they deserve. We should do a whole episode for uh, International Women's Day. Yeah, that'd be fun. I mean, like, I don't know... Like, name one major composer that I need to know about. One major composer that you, like, need to know about? Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, 
I feel like it would be apt to talk about Leonard Bernstein, considering that this year he is 100 years old. How old? How old? The old boy. Yeah, he's unfortunately not alive anymore, but if he were still living, this would be... Says doctors. Doctors don't (laughs) know anything about it. And his headstone... His headstone isn't a doctor. Since when could rocks be doctors? I'm d- maybe I- <laughs> you're thinking of a rockter. Or maybe, maybe a geologist. But certainly no stones are doctors. No, I I meant like a doctor who pronounced him not alive and then the headstone that marks where he's buried are probably okay. two pretty good signs that he's not with us anymore. Okay, I believe you. Yeah. Um, so Leonard Bernstein. Uh, the was late bo- Leonard Bernstein. The late Leonard Bernstein, the wonderful, magnificent late Leonard Bernstein was born on August 25th in 1918 in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Ooh, Lawrence of Massachusetts. Uh-huh. And he passed away on October 14th of 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a day before my sister's birthday and your birthday, baby. Yes. Well, one of my birthdays. One of, one of my many birthdays. You're lucky you get two birthdays. Gee, Haley, your mom lets you, <laughs> you get two, two birthdays. birthdays. <laughs> baby, you did a meme. I did a meme. I'm young again. Um. um anyway, he was 72 when he passed away in New York City. Um, which is where he spent most of his life. Uh, his occupation, his list of occupations is endless, um, but he's mostly known as a composer, a conductor, and a pianist. Ooh, pianist. Um, a yeah, pianist. oh, he was an incredible pianist, like, amazingly See, good. I, I, isn't it, isn't it pianist? It's either or. But I feel like there's been this movement away from pianist for obvious reasons. I mean, if you I mean, want to be gross about show. it, that's fine. This is a fine. family show where we don't swear. Right. But... Well, talking about <laughs> talking about body parts isn't gross or swearing. Okay. But we don't have to be blue about it. You are blue. I, yes. I picked my name for a reason. Oh, um, mamma mia. Here uh, we go again. <laughs> he was married to a woman named Felicia Mon- Montilegre. I cannot say her. Mon- Montilegre. Montilegre? Montilegre. Was she Italian? I don't know. It looks Italian. Uh, but they were married from 1951 until 1978 when she passed away from lung cancer, which we'll get into that a little more later. Um right. But together they had three children named Jamie, Alexander, and Nina. Oh, those are good names. Um, he was one of the first conductors born and educated in the United States to ever receive worldwide acclaim. So mm-hmm. of he's probably I would safely could safely say that he's probably the most well known US composer and conductor. Mm-hmm. Maybe not yes. composer, but definitely conductor. Like He's, su- I mean, like cl- when we're talking about like classical, like symphonic music, he's, right. I mean, he's way up there. 
with Copeland and all of that, those who we're going to talk about later. Um, uh, he's been described by uh, American music critics as one of the most pro, one of the most prodigiously talented and successful musicians in American history. Mm-hmm. Oh, Siri decided to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Hi, I hear you're talking about Leonard Bernstein. Let me tell you about the time he fell into a book of poetry and then just had to compose his way out of it. That, I mean, maybe happened. Who knows? Who knows? Um, Led an interesting life. First <laughs> American composer ever. No, First well, one to do it. Hold on now. Wait, that's not true. <laughs> Hey, I'm going by European opera standards here, and those snooty boys and boys. <laughs> Let's yep. be honest. Yep. Those yep. snooty yep. boys yep. and boys yep. would say definitely the first American composer by well, their I mean, standards. No, I mean Eric and Aaron Copeland came first. He was pretty popular. Yeah. Um. Oh, I mean, like, if you want to, I mean, we want to get into that. Like the music that we hear that we think of as Americana music. Like when you hear music and you go, oh yeah, that's like as American as music gets. That's like a Western movie. Not quite like that, but like you know the soaring, like the kind of music you'd hear on Soarin' at Disney World when you fly over the Grand Canyon. Okay. Like that's Aaron Copeland. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah. So like the spaghetti Western kind of. Well, and just like, yeah, just like the idea of like manifest destiny and like the American dream, like that's Aaron Copeland, like all of that kind of music that makes you feel like, oh yeah, America, like from sea to shining sea with purple mountains majesty, like that kind of music, that's, that's Aaron Copeland. That's what he's known for. Okay, cool. Um, We're not talking about Aaron Copeland. No, well, we will actually, because he was really, really good friends with Bernstein. Oh. Um, yeah, that's the thing is that Bernstein was friends with like all of these super, super important, wonderful people and like composers and conductors and he he was com- totally influential and like super cool. And we're not going to be able to get into everything because there's a lot. Um, well, so if you like, damn life. Yeah, well, and I mean, like this man did a lot of stuff. Like mm-hmm. he he was a busy, busy person. Um, so if you like. If we talk about some stuff and you're like, oh, I want more information on that, Google it. He's got, there's a hundred million books about his life. There's movies. There's all kinds of stuff. You can even just go read more of the Wikipedia article. I cut a lot of stuff. So if you're interested, you can go do more research on him. Um, Okay. But what he's most famous for is for being a longstanding music director of the New York Philharmonic. Um, He's also conducted concerts all over the world for some of the top orchestras um, and he wrote music for musicals such as West Side Story, um, the 1950 version of Peter Pan, um, which is the best version in my opinion. They, mm-hmm. It's a little outdated at this point, but the some of the songs in there, I've sung, I think I've sung to you that Neverland song before. Mm-hmm. That's from that version. Um, wow. Candide, which is not technically a musical, it's an operetta, but it's, treated like a musical now um wonderful town which is different from on the town Uh um and then he he's also super well known for his mass 
uh, the Bernstein Mass is like. I have a record of the Bernstein Mass. Like that's how <laughs> that's how special and important that that piece is. Wow. Um, uh, he was also the first conductor to give a series of television lectures about classical music. Oh, um, like a like a PBS kind of a deal. Like yeah, a, exactly like a PBS billions kind of deal. and billions of notes. Yeah, uh, similar to I would I would I haven't actually seen them. Although upon reading about them, I really want to. But the mm-hmm. way he structured it, it kind of sounds like a um, a cross between like uh, uh, Mister Rogers' Neighborhood and uh, Disney's Fantasia, and then also. Um, cosmos. that one, huh? Cosmos, a, a little bit like Cosmos, and also, um, I would say, uh, you know, that I don't know if you've ever, you ever, uh, I know you and I both listened to the radio a lot growing up, but like, I listened mm-hmm. to a lot of like my favorite stations were like, you know, the station that at night would play classical music until it hit like 10 p.m. and then it would play jazz, mm-hmm. and a lot of times the stations like that would do these segments where they would play whole suites and then the DJ or the, you know, whoever was hosting the radio station would like give descriptions in between of like things that were happening. And so I had this CD recording of Peter and the Wolf where Mm. the, um, uh, whoever was hosting the thing would like, while the song was playing would like describe what the instruments were doing and what they represented and tell the story over the recording. And I had the same thing for the animals, the circus of the animals suite with like aquarium and, uh, and all of like some of my favorite pieces. So, um, I imagine it's something along the lines of that, but I've never seen it, so I don't know. But I like really, really want to, cause I'll, we'll get to describing that later, but it looks really cool. Yeah. Um, he also wrote, tons of different styles um and he wrote like symphonic music he wrote orchestral music he wrote ballets film music theater music works for choirs or operas chamber music i'm sorry i'm i (laughs) operas are actually operas for orca whales (laughs) and they go i'm dyslexic too you know (laughs) I'm looking so at coral. So I'm look. The word coral and opera are right next to each other. You can't well, give me actually. Orpras usually are performed in coral. So <laughs> I'm gonna leave. <laughs> uh, he wrote choral works, operas, chamber music, and lots of pieces for the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was born. His name was Louis Bernstein, and he was the son of two. Uh, Ukrainian Jewish folks. Their names were Jenny and Samuel, mm-hmm. otherwise known as Sam. Uh, and his grandmother insisted that his name was to be Lewis, even though his parents always called him Leonard. Um, and so when he was 15, shortly after his grandmother passed away, he changed his name to Leonard legally. <laughs> oh, yikes. Yeah, that's there's the tea I was telling you about earlier. That's the first little bit of family drama. His grandma died and he was like, screw you, grandma, I'm changing my name. <laughs> Um, so to his friends and many others, he was simply known as Lenny. That was what he was called. So since Lenny Bernstein, Lenny Bernstein. And so since I like to consider, I like to imagine that if he was still alive, we would be friends. I'm going to call him Lenny because he's a good guy. Listen, he's a nice guy. All right. Now I'll take it. Well, you're out here doing the good fight. So like you're out here educating the, educating the masses 
and you know well and i have a lot of respect the- for the stuff that he did and he will get more into all of this kind of stuff later but he got a lot of crap from critics right about a lot of his work um right which of course now everyone's like oh the amazing bernstein but at the time you know he got a lot of he got a lot of flack, flack. from people about a lot of stuff that he did um mm-hmm. and so we'll get into that but his dad actually initially was against him and his interest in music mm-hmm. um but they still took him to all kinds of orchestral concerts and stuff in his youth and in his teenage years. And eventually when he decided he wanted to go to school for music, his dad paid the way for him, which was really nice. That is nice. Um, so at a very, very young age, he attended a piano performance and was just instantly captivated. It's kind of like, I imagine it's like the same story. This is the second time I'm mentoring, I'm mentioning Mr. Rogers, but I'm Mm -hmm. imagining it's like the story of, uh, there was some young cellist who was talking about the time that, uh, he saw someone play cello on Mr. Rogers and was like, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he was like, that's it. That's my instrument. Um, Oh no! There was some other. There was some uh, Hispanic bassist who said the same thing, that she saw someone play bass on TV, and she was like, "Yeah, that's I want to do that," um, which I think is cool. Nice. Um, but he then, like, once he listened to this performance, he began learning piano, and um, his cousin Lillian, hair toss. Um, his cousin uh gave them her piano and so he started to learn and uh as a child yeah he had a gift huh it's a heck of a gift yeah i mean he's he's a prodigy for sure um Mm -hmm. and as a child he and his younger sister shirley were super close and so oftentimes they would play entire operas or beethoven symphonies together at the piano no, <laughs> I know, <laughs> but remember, this was the early nineteen right. This was the this was 1930s. essentially the same thing as gaming at the time. Right, was it's like, like Leonard. Yes. But they were like his parents were like, "Don't play and sing those entire operas. Go outside and I don't know, be racist." <laughs> I don't know what people did like for activities back then. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, rather than it's like now when they're like oh, don't sit down and watch a whole season. Don't sit yeah. down and watch a whole season of television. Go outside and play. Go outside and be racist. Actually, things have not really changed. Things have not changed uh, unfortunately in 100 yeah. years. Um that? How about that? Uh although Bernstein wasn't a racist. What? Yes. That's He's actually known for this. Yes. Uh, he attended... Like, speci- like specifically. <laughs> yeah, which is unfortunate. Um, which, speaking of, he attended Harvard University where he studied music and his final thesis was titled The Absorption of Race Elements into American Music. Ooh. Um, which I would love to read. It must be excellent. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I would love to read a senior thesis that Bernstein wrote when he graduated Harvard. I'm sure it's it's great. <laughs> Um, he, uh, while he was at Harvard, he was the accompanist for the Harvard Glee Club for a little while. Um, and he also was in charge of a student production of a play with music called The Cradle Will Rock. A play with music, you say? Yes. Uh, it's not a musical. It's a play that has music. 
Right. There is a difference. Um, and so he directed its action from the piano, just as the original composer did during the premiere. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the thing about that play is that it was banned. What? Um, from a lot of places. Yeah. Really? Um, because what it's was a, so scandalous about it? It's about the disparity between the working and the upper classes. Oh, so it's communism. Yes. And communism. so he was a huge social activist. Like he constantly did pieces that were seen as like scandalous. More like and... socialist activist. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was what was called a quote unquote radical chic. Um, he was super, he was super into, uh, anti-establishment and like, yeah, no, he was very communist. Wait, are you telling me that Leonard Bernstein was like a hundred years ago punk rock? Yeah. (laughs) He was actually named in a book called Red Channels, the report of communist influence in radio and television. And he was listed as a communist along with Aaron Copeland, Lena Horne, Pete Seeger, Artie Shaw, and other prominent figures of the performing arts. So Red wow. Channels was a uh, Red Channels was actually issued by a right wing journal, uh, mm-hmm. but it was uh, because like they were trying to like call out people that were communists, but it actually ended right. up just like bringing them all together, which was really funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as as happens with the right wing a lot. Yes. Um, but no, yeah, he he was a super like liberal left wing communist guy who like did a lot of act. I mean, and he he was super into philanthropy too. That was one of the things that like from his youth he like wanted to be a th- philanthropist and he wanted to like give make money and then give it away. And so you know he one of his main things that he like was su- was super important important to him was to integrate the arts into normal education. Um. And he wanted a man to build after your own heart. I know <laughs> we're we're very similar. Um, and he wanted to build an international school to help promote this. Um, and so uh, he won a lifetime achievement award right before he passed away. Um, and he used the hundred thousand dollars that he won to build a school in Nashville. And basically, wow. um, the school was built not for students but for teachers to go back to school and learn how to integrate dance, music, and theater into into the school system. Um, which, wow. it's actually really funny because I got led down this rabbit hole while I was reading about him because one of the places he studied in his youth, at, like a summer intensive he went to was at Tanglewood, which is um, a school in uh, Boston. And uh, what's so important to me about Tanglewood which is, is I'm crazy because my brother lives in Englewood, which is in Nashville. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. <laughs> Um, but what's important to me, Tanglewood popped out to me when I saw it because here at Florida State, where I go to school, we learn about something called the Tanglewood Symposium, which is a big conference that happened in 1967, which I not to my, I don't, to my knowledge, I did some research and to f- try to figure out, but to my knowledge, Bernstein had nothing to do with it, although I'm sure he was aware of it, of it happening. Um, Because it was a super big deal because the point of the Tanglewood Symposium was to bring all of these music educators together. And they basically like they were trying to answer three 
main questions. What are the characteristics and desirable ideologies for an emerging and post-industrial society? What are the mm-hmm. values and unique functions of music and other arts for individuals and communities in such a society? And, and how may these potentials be attained? And what is that weird stuff that floats on top of kombucha? Yeah, exactly. No. That's um, the main question I want to know. And so basically, like, the purpose of the Tanglewood Symposium was to take music and incorporate it into the core curriculum of school. Okay. Um, and all of this started, like, at the school that I'm going to now, which I thought was really cool. So when the word Tanglewood popped up, I went, hey, I know something about Tanglewood. Um, so I just thought it was cool that, like, I don't know. He probably wasn't directly related with that at all, but I just thought mm-hmm. it was cool that I, f- I felt had this moment of like, I'm one degree of separation removed from Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> oh, um, but anyway, what a dream. <laughs> yeah. Um, back to his youth. So now we, now we're getting into uh, Aaron Copeland. Right. Uh, the so mean the- Lord himself. <laughs> The other important influence, so one of the important influences on Bernstein's life, um, he first met during his years at Harvard was Aaron Copeland, and he met him at a concert and then at a party afterwards celebrating Copeland's birthday. And this was Mm -hmm. 1938. And uh, at the party, Bernstein played Copeland's Piano Variations, um, a work that Bernstein loved, but he didn't know anything about the composer. So I want you to imagine this scene. Right. You've got this piece, this piano piece that you love a lot. And so you sit down at the piano at this person's party and you start playing it. Okay. And you don't know anything about the person that wrote it, except that you're at their birthday party right now (laughs) playing the piece for them and they wrote it. And so you turn around and you're like, I don't know anything about you. Let's be friends. (laughs) I mean, I I don't know a better way to make friends than being like, this is that thing you made. I like it. What's your name? Stud? <laughs> and then they married each other. No, but um, <laughs> oh. I'm sure they, I'm pretty sure Kurt Copeland was much older than Bernstein at that point. But, um, and here's the thing. Uh, Bernstein was never formally Copeland's student, <gasps> um, but he like came to him for advice a lot about all his own compositions and in a lot so of his writings. Of a mentor. Yeah, well, but in a lot of his writings, he called him the only real composition teacher he ever had. Interesting. Um, which I think is interesting. Which is a sick burn against his actual composition <laughs> teacher. Yeah, if he ever had any, to be fair, I don't know that he ever really studied composition. Because I know he, like, what he's mainly, like, a lot of what he did in his life was conducting. Mm-hmm. Um, which we'll get into a little bit later. He talks about, like... Yeah, we'll we'll get into that later. But he he graduated from Harvard in 1939, um, and then he enrolled in the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. Um, and while he was there, one of the one of the people he studied with uh, was said Curtis that, himself. No, his name was Fritz Reiner, and uh, who has stated that the only A he's ever awarded he gave to Bernstein. <laughs> <laughs> Um and what a jerk. Yeah, right. Uh yeah, the classical music people are so up their own butts. Um but Whoa Listen, Shots I live in the fired. classical music world. I'm allowed to say it. I mean go for it, but like hot diggity. That's some tea. 
I mean, they are. Like, get over yourself. Mm-hmm. There's other kinds of music. What? <laughs> You're not no. the end-all be-all. <laughs> and that's the thing is like everything everyone's like, oh, everything came from classical music. I'm like, no, it didn't. Everything came from African music, you idiot. Well, you know what didn't come from any music? <laughs> what? Maybe a little a little bit. Uh some of the other podcasts we have on our network. Uh <laughs> do you wanna do you wanna take a little skedaddle with me over to the box office? Yeah, let's take an intermission and let's go buy some merch. Hey, that's copyrighted. Not when it's in my mouth. Um <laughs> so uh hi. You Don't can put buy- it in your mouth. <laughs> I'll put whatever I want in my mouth. I'll put the girl from Impanima in my mouth. Our sponsor this week is the girl from Impanima. Don't put her in your mouth. Unless it's the girl from Impanata, and then, oh boy, dig in. Oh boy. I feel like we've made this joke before, probably not on a podcast, but just in general. Sure, why not? So um, (laughs) what do we have on the docket today, my beautiful girlfriend? Well, I think today would be a good day to talk about... Ending, ending pending. pending. <gasps> Brain twin. <laughs> Crush the garlic. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, ending pending is a one. <laughs> ending pending is a wonderful podcast that we just added to our network. Mm-hmm. We're so happy to have them as a part of our family. Um, and uh, basically the premise is that uh, these three wonderful people um, will talk about, in depth, mind you, um, about a canceled TV show that only ran for one season. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we've all had that show that like started and then ended uh, before it's time you know like in Mm -hmm. in cut down in the middle of its prime Mm -hmm. i mean some of them went more than one season and you know like i can think of gravity falls others are easy easy targets like firefly but absolutely there are mostly focus on one season shows though and yes there are so many shows that have been shut down in their prime and they are the detectives opening up the cold cases serial style and analyzing the untimely deaths of these shows, but mostly celebrating <laughs> their brief lives. Yeah. And it's uh, cool because they talk about, I mean, they don't like stick to a genre, right? It's not just like mm-hmm. a certain type of show. It's like everything from narrative shows to reality TV shows. It's it's cool. They're And they're super great bunch of folks who are just funny and fun together. And we're super glad to have them on the network. They're awesome people. Very, very good. Um, behind the scenes, on the scene, um, out on the town, mm-hmm. getting some getting some good uh, kombucha from your <laughs> from your from your favorite <laughs> gross mold okay, shop. Haley's been watching this series about <laughs> about fermenting things, and so right now she's obsessed with kombucha and beef jerky. <laughs> And I can't help, I can't get her to, help, I can't get my girlfriend to stop talking about kombucha. Baby, have you ever even had kombucha? millennial, no, I haven't. That's the most millennial problem 
I've ever heard though. That's is the thing help. Though, is I can't get my girlfriend to stop, stop talking, talking about kombucha. You've never even um, had it. I can't. I am in I know. recovery from drugs and alcohol addiction, and I there's know. a small amount of alcohol in kombucha, and everyone's talking about how it's so good for your tummy, and I'm sitting over here like, well... Eating whole cloves of garlic instead. Eating whole cloves of garlic instead, because that's what I've been reduced to because of my life choices. Speaking of life choices, we got another podcast on the network we want to talk about, and oh. of course, that one is... Over which? That's the one. Gaming is a life choice, and it's a <laughs> lifestyle, and it's a blight on the world. And apparently <laughs> so is being gay. It's a disease. Um, oh, not no. being gay. Being gay is not a disease, but gaming is a disease, <laughs> and it's corrupting our youth. And uh, these three I boys, played. These I three played boys, a Nintendo game man once, and now I have gamer's disease. And these three boys are here to cure you of your gamer's disease. And you know what that means? They're going through these different games, and they're talking about it and rating it on a scale of how much time they are willing to spend playing another game besides Overwatch. Yes, and it's also not talking just about- an Overwatch podcast. It sounds like it is, but we promise it's not. They talk about other video games, too, and it's... They do talk about Overwatch, if that is your thing. They, they talk about the latest Overwatch news and stuff like that. They're, they're but- always staying up to date but if that's not your thing they but it's, also it's, it's cool though because they talk about overwatch but they talk about overwatch like casual players and not like the super rude competitive ones you know yeah, they're like super are... chill about it you know you know how um gamers disease has turned uh the the men of our generation into um what's the word um virulent trash goblins yeah. Uh, so these three boys aren't virulent trash goblins. Thank God for that. Uh, they're actually good, good boys, and uh, we love them a lot, and we're really happy to have them on our network. So check out Overwitch, and ch- which is every um, flip. Um, every other Friday. Every other Friday. Alternating with Good Boys Girls. Alternating with Good Boys Girls. And also yes. check out um, Ending Pending, which is every, every other, other <laughs> Tuesday. Wednesday. Wednesday. Today's Thursday. <laughs> every other Thursday. Wednesday. Wednesday. <laughs> anyway, let's get back to the podcast part, which we're good at. <laughs> this is the second podcast you and I have made where we're bad at doing ads for our friends. I mean, to be fair, the other <laughs> other podcast we make is about us being at bad at making ads. So. But no, but that's that podcast is about us being so good at making ads that they're bad that they go viral. We're we're literally being actually bad now. Yeah, for our friends, we're being our bad friends. to our friends. And you know what? We're sorry, and you deserve a better podcast network. <laughs> Baby, don't say that. I'm going back into my scoby and dying. Okay. Um, back. Right, now it's time for act two. Um, oh. Do 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 do. 
So after Bernstein, after Lenny left Curtis, uh, the Curtis Institute, he lived that in New York. That sounds like a sitcom, if I ever heard one. <laughs> when, Lenny Lenny me- when Lenny left Curtis, that sounds like a sitcom about a bitter gay couple <laughs> who are trying to, but they still live in the same apartment complex. Yeah. And so, no, 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 no. <gasps> No, it's a bitter gay... Hang on. We're changing the podcast to a pitch show. So, okay. So, it's about a bitter gay couple living in New York in the 1960s, but they have to keep up the ruse that they're roommates because if one of them leaves, they're gonna, people are going to get suspicious that something happened about their relationship. And so, the, also, they're both... Um, uh, musicians or something and they can't uh, they the, they can't afford getting a new apartment so mm-hmm. they have they need to live with one another and so because it's an odd they're couple gay situation but gay no it's a, it's not an odd couple situation but gay it's a bitter exes living together situation and they're gay and so it's just so all it's about them truly odd couple but bitter exes and gay Yes, but the but the reason it's better than a regular odd couple show is the sh of it all. The shade and the tea, of course. The absolutely. shade and the tea will just Although, have pour you read Odd Couple screen. or seen Odd Couple, the female version? There's no. plenty of shade to be had. I know, but no one does book. shade like bitter gay men from the 60s. True, but you should have seen me play Olive. True, but you should have seen me any day. I wish I could, baby. I love you. Um, so, after so Lenny left Curtis. He left Curtis Institute and he moved to New York City and he shared an apartment with his friend Adolph Green, who you would recognize mm-hmm. from uh, Comden and Green. Uh-huh. Um, and Comden and Green are a well-known pair of lyricists that partnered with Leonard Bernstein a lot. And... Um, if my memory serves, I'm actually going to look it up so I don't look like a complete fool when I say this. Um, but Compton and Green are known for Singing in the Rain. I'm singing in the rain. And I'm pretty sure they also did... I'm pretty sure they also did um, the plant one. Little Shop of Horrors? Yes. No, that's Alan Menken. What am I thinking of? I don't know. <laughs> Hold on. No, they did something else that's like super well known. Tall and tan and something. Will Rogers I... Follies on and the 20th century. As crispy and tasty, I dip it in a sauce and then munch it and. Mm. I could have sworn Comden and Green did uh, Guys and Dolls. Guys and Dolls living together in the city. Well, they definitely did. They definitely that's did the, Peter that's Pan. The, that's the song, right? No. Oh, um. Dang. So anyway, he wrote with them, uh, and so uh, and he often accompanied. Uh, Adolph Green, Betty Comden, and their friend Judy Holiday were in a comedy troupe called The Reviewers, and they performed in Greenwich Village. Ooh. Um, and he and Bernstein played the piano for them, which is very fun. Um, and then he also took job as a music publisher, which he transcribed music 
um, and produced arrangements under the pseudonym Lenny Amber because Bernstein in German means Amber in English. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> here's where it gets fun. Okay. Um, so Lenny Bernstein was a lucky son of a gun. Mm. Uh, on November 14th of 1943, um, he had recently, so he had recently been appointed assistant conductor to the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. Mm -hmm. Um, but he made his major conducting debut at short notice with no rehearsal because the guest conductor came down with the flu. (sighs) Gotta get your flu shots, everybody. And so the program included works by Schumann, Wagner, and also stuff from Richard Strauss's Don Quixote. Uh, and so like briefly, like just a little bit of time before the concert, he spoke to Bruno Walter, who was supposed to be the conductor. And they like talked about all the little things that were going to be difficult. And they looked over the score together. And then he just got up on stage and he conducted it. And the next day, the New York times put out a story on the front page remarking what a like wild American success story it was. And like, and because here's the other thing, baby, it mm-hmm. was nationally broadcast on CBS radio. Oh, no, Lenny. And he became oh my instantly God. famous because he was amazing. Just ironclad nerves. On yeah. Stone yeah. And cold, ice cold. Yes. And so that was when he started to become popular. He became everybody wanted him to be a guest conductor like all over the United States because he was this guy who came in and conducted this super complicated concert for the New York Philharmonic Orchestra at the last minute with no rehearsal. Yeah. Who does that? Nobody does that. That's wild. Like there are people who go to school for 10 years to get their master's degree in conducting. Right. And never end up being that good. Like this guy was a prodigy. (sighs) <sighs> at waving a stick. It's not, it's a lot more than waving a stick. And to be honest, I was in the same boat as like, oh, it's just waving a stick. How hard can it be? And now I've been a music education major for a semester and I've watched people learn how to conduct. It's a lot of work. But here's the other thing about it. Not only is it a lot of work, but it's also like weirdly unnecessary work because have you ever seen a choir without a conductor? Yes. Have you ever seen a conductor without a choir? No. Exactly. So conductors are like, to a point, kind of unnecessary, but, but like also, are also super you just important. Saw, but also you just saw this very day a choir without a conductor. I did. It's true. I and saw they were, acapella and choirs. They were, and they were not super great. They were okay. Yeah. Conductors add a lot. They do a lot of work. So there you go. Um, it's not yeah. just waving a stick. Not just waving a stick. It's like, you know what? I'll put it in food terms. Sure. It's like salt, right? Right. Salt is just salt. And on its own, it's just salt. It's boring. It's salt. Well, and it's it's salt. Who eats just salt? That's terrible. Don't knock it till you try it. But like, so (laughs) it's just salt. And like, you know, you just like, it's boring. It's on its own. But you add salt to the food and it brings it to a whole nother level. Right, brings it to life. So a conductor it looks is like, like just a, a stick. It's un, unex- it's unassuming. It's unassuming. It seems useless. 
Or you know what's but even you, better, baby? What? Cinnamon. Cinnamon. Because when you eat cinnamon by itself, it just tastes like cardboard. Right. So if you but saw a you, guy just conducting in a on a street corner, you'd think he was insane. Yeah, I'd be like, "What are you doing?" No, you would love it. You would watch it I and hear the it. music in your head because you're a big freaking nerd. Or I would stand but in like, front of him and sing a song that doesn't exist. But yes, yeah, that's. But let's 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 play the ball where it lies. Let's sure. let's let's the put our person, pieces in order. Who's here. not a nerd like me? Who's not a big G dang nerd? Um. So moving on, um, <laughs> from 1945 to 1947, Bernstein was the musical director of the New York City Symphony, which is different from the Philharmonic. So the mm-hmm. Symphonic Orchestra was established. Bernstein actually established it. Oh. Um, and so it was established to be aimed at a different audience than the Philharmonic. The Philharmonic was playing older music. And so the symphony was to play more modern music and also have cheaper tickets so that a different demographic of people could come and attend the symphony. What a notion. Yeah. So making music available. Bernstein, our good, good communist boy trying to destroy the system of this elitist classical music that I, again, am going to complain about, but he like was working to make it not a problem and created this symphony that not only played recent music by modern composers, but also charged less for people to come see it. And he was a huge proponent of like radio um, broadcasting and like recording stuff so that people could have access to it. He, there are, he has made, I can't tell you how many paragraphs I cut out of this that is just talking about like, well, he conducted this and it was recorded here and it's available to listen to here. And there's a CD collection of it here and there's a DVD collection of it here. And like, that was his thing. He wanted to bring music to the people. He wanted to make it accessible which I think is so cool. He's just my dude. Like, he's such a guy. I just, he's so great. I feel like we would have been friends. He's a mensch. Yeah. Um, the other thing about, so around this time period in the in the early 40s, around this time when he first started to become known as a conductor, he also started composing. Well, I'm sure he'd been composing before that, but this is when his composition started to actually get performed at places. Um, so in, for example, in 1944, um, he conducted the premiere of his Jeremiah Symphony in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the, he, his first ballet, which was called Fancy Free, which was choreographed by Jerome Robbins. Hello. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was their first time working together. And Jerome Robbins ended up actually becoming the director and choreographer of West Side Story. So ah. this is where their relationship first started. And Jerome Robbins is a, another person that we could just go off about. He's so important because he, especially with West Side Story, he like revolutionized dance in musicals. And the whole concept that like fighting, like stage fighting could be stage dance fighting Right. That's like a whole genre of dance that he basically invented using modern dance and contempt. Like, ugh, I, he's awesome. So they worked very closely together starting in the 40s. So uh, Leonard Bernstein and Jerome Robbins started working together on doing uh, their ballet Fancy Free. And then they worked together again on, on the town. Um, Normally fancy costs a lot of money. So... The fact that they're trying to make fancy free it just plays into the fact that Leonard Bernstein is a raging communist. Totally. 
Um, and Fancy Free was actually the basis for On the Town, um, which I don't okay. know if you're familiar with On the Town. I am not familiar with On the Town. Basically, it's uh, three sailors who Ooh. are... Yes, they're going off to war. And so it's their last night in New York City, and so they decide to make the most of it by, like, finding women. (laughs) Fair enough. Basically, they just, like, they each have different, one of them's like, I'm going to eat the best meal and, like, go do this. And the other one's like, I'm going to find a girl to spend the night with and, like. Yeah, they're just yeah. It's cute though. It's it's fun and like I've not actually ever my school did it. My old school. Uh-huh. I didn't go see it though. Oh. Um. Yeah, that's my bad. Um. It's but no, okay. they did it in honor of of his uh, of his birthday, of his right. of his birth year, his hundredth year. Um. Here's the thing about Lenny. Lenny. Our boy. Our boy had asthma. <gasps> so he. He uh, he uh, managed to escape the war. Ah. Um. And after the war, after the war ended, uh, he started to become internationally famous. So his first overseas debut was the Czech Philharmonic in Prague in 1946. Ooh. Um, right after the war. Yeah. Huh? Right after the war. Right Prague, after the war. Prague yeah. had just been liberated. Right. And then in uh, in 1947, he conducted in Tel Aviv for the first time, which began a lifelong association with Israel. 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 Sorry. My tongue (laughs) is all twisted up today. Um, And so then in the next year, in 1948, he conducted an open air concert for uh, troops in Israel in the middle of the desert during the uh, Arab-Israeli War. Mm. Uh, and then in 1957, uh, he conducted another concert in Tel Aviv. Um, and he made a ton of recordings there. Um, and he recorded a concert um, to commemorate the reunification of Jerusalem in 1967. Cool. Yeah, he did a lot of stuff. Um, Just and got he around. In, yeah, well, he, he had a long, a lifelong, I mean, because he was Jewish. So he had right. a lifelong partnership with um uh with israel and so he a a lot of his symphonies in the 70s he actually recorded with the israel philharmonic rather than like the new york one which is kind of cool interesting um yeah so jumping backwards in december uh on december 10th 1949 he made his first television appearance as conductor with the boston symphony orchestra in carnegie hall um the concert included an address by eleanor roosevelt Um, And it celebrated the one-year anniversary of the United Nations General Assembly's ratification of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights Um, and included the premiere of Aaron Copeland's preamble with Sir Sir Lawrence Olivier narrating text from the UN Charter. Dang, just an all-star cast. Yeah, it it must have been a bomb evening. I wonder if there's a recording of that somewhere. I would love to hear it. Yeah. Um... So, uh, in 1951, Bernstein conducted the New York Philharmonic in the world premiere of the Symphony No. 2 of Charles Ives, which was written around a half century earlier, but had never been performed. Ooh. And um, Bernstein talked about... Bernstein was known for, like, taking either super not well-known composers or, like, long 
not dead like the composers weren't dead but their music had died in the eye of the public and mm-hmm. he like revitalized them interesting um yeah and uh bernstein talked a lot about the music of of charles ives um and at the time of the recording at the time of the performance of this the composer was was a very old man and was not able to go to the concert but his wife did um and then uh, a couple days later, he apparently this it's been reported from several sources that he listened to the radio broadcast of the performance in his kitchen. And uh, no one knows exactly how he reacted, but some say that he was thrilled and he got up and did a little jig in his kitchen. Because he was so happy that one of his symphonies who, that had never been performed finally got performed. Oh, what a sweet story. Don't <laughs> jig. Yeah. Aww. Um, dancing happy old man. <laughs> yeah. That makes me so happy. Yeah. He's Bernstein's a good guy, honestly. Like that's what I really learned about like learning about him. Is he just like I'm sure he had was problematic and like had issues, but like on the whole, he was a pretty good person. Mm-hmm. Um and he had some problems. We'll get into those later, but um uh Oh, yeah. Uh, in 1953, he produced the score to the musical Wonderful Town in very short notice, uh, working again with Comden and Green, who wrote the lyrics. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, this is what I was talking about earlier. So, in 1954, Bernstein made his first television lectures for the CBS arts program Omnibus. Omnibus. Live lecture entitled Beethoven's Fifth Symphony involved Bernstein explaining the work with the aid of musicians from the former NBC Symphony Orchestra. Uh, and there was a giant page of the score covering the floor. Oh, wow. Which sounds really cool. I want to see this so bad. Uh, yeah. he, re- he recorded Omnibus lectures from 1955 to 1958. Uh, so it started out on CBS and then it moved to ABC and then to NBC. And over the time that this program was alive, they covered jazz. They covered conducting. They covered American musical comedies. They covered modern music. They covered Bach. They covered opera. All kinds of stuff. They covered Bach-bra. bach <laughs> Did Bach write opera? I don't actually know that if he, he did. did. It's called bach Yeah. Uh, these programs, they, so they are all available in the U.S. on DVD as of 2010. So, baby, you know what I want for Christmas. <laughs> I... Amazon.com. <laughs> um, so, Bernstein officially became the music director of the New York Philharmonic in 1957. Um, and his first season in charge... Uh, he included, which wasn't until 1958 because he was co-conductors with the current conductor at the time, kind of like a, you know, like an apprenticeship thing where they like work together. And then in 1958, he took over. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his first season, he did a season long survey of American classical music. So the whole season was all American composers. And um, the thing about that is that this was kind of a revelation. Like, this was a new thing because nowadays, you know, we see, like, professional theaters do themed programming all year long. And orchestras will, like, you know, they'll do, like, oh, the theme this year is Lost Love. And so then they'll pick, like, four operas that all have to do with that. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the time, in 1958, that was, like, that was novel. That was, like totally unheard of and so the fact that he like did a whole season long 
of all just American classical music was really cool. Um, and so he held that position until 1969. Um, but he continued to work for them and make recordings for like the rest of his life. Um, and so he was titled the laureate conductor. That was his, uh, his uh, appointed position. Uh. Um, Another thing he did uh, was he did 53 televised young people's concerts for CBS, which kind of grew out of his other program. Mm -hmm. Um, And so basically uh, those were more about music appreciation. Right. Um, And so it was honestly, it was the first and possibly the most influential series of music appreciation programs um and they're still used as far as i know to like teach classes now wow um what a prolific career seriously oh it goes on oh uh, wow we okay. haven't even we gotten go. we haven't even gotten to the best part yet Golly. um so around the time uh around the time he was appointed music director for the philharmonic and he was living across the street from carnegie hall uh, he composed the music for two shows. The first was an operetta called Candide, um, which was first performed in 1956 with a libretto by Lillian Hellman, who is most well known for writing um, The Children's Hour, I think is what it's called. Hair flip. Yes, another person with my name. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, The Children's Hour. Uh, and it's based on, uh, the, Candide is based on a novel uh, a novella of the same title by Voltaire, who is a French poet and author. Yes. Um, and then uh, the second is what it, I can safely say is his most well-known musical. Uh, the second was he collaborated with Jerome Robbins and Arthur Lawrence to start producing West Side Story. Yes. And the, the three when of them... When you're a jet, you're a jet. <laughs> all the way from your first cigarette till your last dying day. And the three of them worked on it on and off since Robbins first suggested the idea in 1949. But then they added our sweet boy into the mix. Lin-Manuel Miranda. No, the other sweet oh. boy. What sweet boy? Oh, Sondheim? Yeah, Sondheim wrote the lyrics. He's mean boy. Well, yeah. But Um, you called him sweet boy. So so Sondheim was the last addition to the team and he this little (laughs) ragtag team of geniuses. No, no, no. Sondheim specifically, this little (laughs) pitched such a fit about having to write lyrics, because he was like, I'm a composer. I don't write, I don't only write lyrics, I write music and lyrics. And Oscar Hammerstein looked at him and said, if you turn down this opportunity to work with Leonard Bernstein, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life, you little jerk. And so <laughs> he, he went, then went forward to write lyrics for what is easily one of the most popular musicals ever. Yeah. Holy um, cow. Holy yeah. baloney. What a uh, what a diva! He's such a <laughs> I don't prick. write I love lyrics. Him. I write lyrics and music. And then Oscar Hammerstein's just like, honey, <laughs> yeah, smacks on the back of the head. Like, what are you doing? Sit down. 
Because <laughs> so Sondheim dumb. was like in his 20s at this point, I'm pretty sure. He was Yeah, that young. sounds like a very 20s thing to say. Yeah. Um, so then... Uh, Oh man, there's just like there's so much stuff here. I'm I'm skimming through and cutting stuff because we're running short on time. Uh, uh, he was a few a huge fan of all kinds of composers and more people who he like brought back, you know, into the modern day. So Danish composer Carl Nielsen and Swedish composer uh, Jean Sibelius, who you probably know that name. Do Maybe. No. Sibelius is his name. He at the time like had completely fallen from from the uh, the public consciousness. But now uh, Bernstein brought him back and it's down to the point where there is a music notation like a music composition software called Sibelius. Oh, wow. Um, they named they named a software after him. Um, it's one of the most popular softwares on top of like Finale. It's like it's like um, Muse Score, where it's like actually sheet music that you. It's uh, it's arrangement software. Okay. Um, it's like Sibelius is the best of the best, and it's right. wicked expensive. But like it's like if you're not using Sibelius, what are you doing? You know. <laughs> like, right, 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 right. Um, and then he also loved you United States composers, like he loved American me? composers. Oh. He loved you and me, and he loved United States composers. So, uh, like Aaron Copeland and William Schumann and David Diamond. And he also collaborated with experimental jazz pianist and composer Dave Brubeck. Don't know. Who's one of, oh, one of my favorite jazz composers. He has this awesome album called Dave Does Disney, where the Dave Brubeck, corp, corp, uh, the Dave Brubeck Quintet does a whole bunch of Disney songs. It's really great. But one of the recordings that he did with Bernstein is called Bernstein Plays Brubeck Plays Bernstein, <laughs> which is so good. I love it. Um, anyway, uh, there, here's some gay tea if you want that. Yes. Um, so Always. there was an, what? Th- I know. <laughs> there was an incident in uh, April of 1962 uh, where Bernstein. Uh, one of the appe- gayest years. One of the gayest years. He appeared on stage uh, to conduct a performance of the Brahms Piano Concerto Number no. One in D minor. And the pianist mm. was a man named Glenn Gould. And uh, during rehearsals, Gould had argued for a much broader, much slower and like uh, just a more luxurious tempo he wanted it to be just you know and Bernstein was like that's not how I picture this music at all right uh and Gould was known for doing this like he this was kind of what he was known for and so at the beginning of uh at the beginning of the concert Bernstein addresses the audience and says don't be frightened Mr. Gould is here and says uh, in a concerto, <laughs> in a concerto, who's the boss, the soloist, or the conductor? Um, and of, the answer is, of course, sometimes one and sometimes the other, depending on the people involved. And the speech was interpreted by music critics for uh, to be like an attack on Gould, mm-hmm. and uh, to be like uh, basically say that he's not. A responsible pianist because he doesn't follow the conductor <laughs> but Bernstein actually denies this and says that he was trying to make a remark uh, to give Gould the blessing to do 
what he wanted to do um, and explain to the audience that like we don't always agree but like sometimes he's right sometimes I am and we're just both here trying to make art and so it doesn't really matter um, and so they were good friends for a long time um, and had a, a very close friendship but as both people who were pianists and musicians and so um, yeah that's just a fun thing that people try to like stir up I love the like musician the classical musician drama it's so funny to me yeah, I mean, it's just that you don't think about it. Um, in the 60s, he had a very close relationship with the Kennedys. Um, he played for them for all... He, 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 he conducted for all sorts of events that they held, um, including uh, including the uh, day after uh, President John F. Kennedy's assassination. Um, he conducted a memorial, a memorial for him. Uh yeah it it he was played a a large part in that um and one of the things he played was uh um uh, Mahler Gustav Mahler which Bernstein was a huge Mahler fan like of all of the composers he was a fan of Mahler was his favorite and he talked about him all the time and it actually got to the point like he performed this he conducted this piece for um John F Kennedy's memorial and he uh it became got to the point where like people kind of associated that symphony of Mahler's with mourning and loss and so like oh, wow. it's kind of just this like thing that goes hand in hand now um ooh excuse me i had a little burp um here's a fun fact chevy chase states in his biography that lauren michaels wanted bernstein to host saturday night live in the show's first season oh wow uh, and that Chase and Bernstein were seated next to each other at someone's birthday party and made the request in person. Um, but the pitch involved uh, a version of Bernstein conducting West Side Story on SNL and Bernstein was like, no thanks. <laughs> oh, well. Well, it serves Chevy Chase right because he's monster trash. Yeah, um, no, it's true. Um Bernstein received a Kennedy Center Honor Award in 1980. This man has so many awards. I'm not even going to try to read them all. I actually deleted the awards section because it was so long. The other thing wow. that's long is his work section. Like it, there, I've got them all listed here, but I'm not even going to go through them because they're so long. You can go look at them if you're really interested. I will. Um. Uh. Let's see. Uh, in 1982, the U.S. Uh, on PBS, they aired an 11-part series of Bernstein's late 1970s films uh, of the Vienna Philharmonic playing all nine Beethoven symphonies. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it was cool because he gave he gave spoken introductions and then they also read pieces of Beethoven's letters while they played, which was neat. Oh, neat. He, he, did, he did cool stuff like that all the time. I would have loved to see one of his concerts live. Like, I can't imagine. Well, I'm glad they recorded a lot of it. I mean, like, that's yeah. the wonder of, of recorded sound. Modern technology. And, and recorded video, yeah. Yeah. A lot of this stuff you can find. It's just, well, and but the thing is, a lot of it existed before, like, saved video. Mm. You know, it was yeah. it was televised and it was, you know, put on Lost. the radio. But that doesn't necessarily mean it was it was kept well i mean like that's like um the freaking moon landing 
Um, right. Yes, it's, it's it's the moon landing story. You know, it, a lot of this stuff. Yeah. It, it it happened, but it's missing now because you know nobody saved it. Yeah, like you know the the, the idiots at NASA, the stupid nerds. They they had <laughs> they good taped footage. an episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> they had good footage of um. I think it was Doctor Who, but like, no, they they had really good footage on the moon, like of an actual like they had a physical camera on the moon, a good one, like yes. a good one that they filmed on the moon, and they couldn't broadcast it because it was like being filmed on the moon, right? And um, like you know, Buzz Aldrin would set up the camera and film the whole situation, and like they had really good footage, but what they wound up using was the crappy television camera that they used to broadcast. And so they had this good footage, but mm -hmm. some nerd taped an episode of Doctor Who on footage. <laughs> and um, I mean, I don't think that's how that tape works, but probably not. Um, they they taped like, you know, they taped over it. They filmed something else on that footage. And, because they didn't label the tape. Because they didn't label the, the film tin. And um they so they lost the original moon landing footage and all the footage that was left was that grainy sh like crappy um the the televised one that was beamed from the moon to the earth so anyway this is why yeah. streaming stuff and youtube and like this is why like you know the 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 society of the spectacle is a good thing because we can capture beautiful moments like this but anyway diatribe aside this Man looks like Dustin Hoffman. Eh, what can you do? He looks like if Dustin Hoffman and David Duchovny had a baby. <laughs> and if you smush those two actors together with CGI magic, you can make one heck of a biopic. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so here's another little fun, fun Lenny story. You know what you On do? You get the guy, the dragons. You get that guy, yeah. and you make him play young Leonard Bernstein, mm -hmm. and then you get David Duchovny to play middle-aged David uh, Lenny Bernstein, and then you get Dustin Hoffman to play old Leonard Bernstein, and that's how mm -hmm. you do it. I'll make this movie for you. There you go. I'm ready. Um. So on December 25th of 1989, Bernstein conducted Beethoven's Symphony Number no. Nine. Uh, as a celebration of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Oh, wow. Uh, but for the occasion, Bernstein rewarded, reworded the text of Ode to Joy, substituting the word Freiheit, freedom, for Freude, joy. And uh, Bernstein, in his spoken introduction, said that they had, quote-unquote, taken the liberty of doing this because of a, quote-unquote, most likely phony story, apparently believed... Uh, that Schiller, who wrote the original text to Ode to Joy, somewhere wrote an ode to freedom that is now presumed lost. And Bernstein said, I'm sure that Beethoven would have given us his blessing. <laughs> <laughs> He's such a... I love him. Uh, he made his final performance as a conductor at Tanglewood on August 19th, 1990 with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, playing Benjamin Britten's Four C Interludes uh, and, ben and Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 7. And during the performance, he had this terrible coughing fit um, during the third movement of the Beethoven Symphony. Um, but he continued to conduct the piece until it was over, and he left the stage during the standing ovation just completely exhausted. 
uh, and in pain. And uh, he announced officially that he was retiring from conducting on October 19th of 1990, which was five days before he passed away. Um, So he literally worked till the day he died. Uh, and he had died of a heart. He died of a heart attack brought on by mesothelioma because he was a heavy, heavy smoker, uh, and he had emphysema from his mid fifties on to the rest of his life. And um, on the day of his funeral procession through the streets of Manhattan, there were construction workers that removed their hats and waved and called out goodbye, Lenny. Um, and uh, he was buried in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York, next to his wife. And he has a copy of Mahler's Fifth Symphony laying across his heart. Because that was his favorite piece. Um, now, not to get... I'm sorry we got sad. But here's more... Here's a little bit of sad and a little bit of tea. It's a little bit of everything. Okay. Here's the thing. He was married to a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But was he really? Oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh so they got married on September 10th of 1951. Right. Um but most suggest that he married partly to dispel rumors about his private life so that he could secure a major conducting appointment because most orchestra boards are very conservative. Right. Um and a book released in October of 2013 called The Leonard Bernstein Letters his wife in a letter acknowledges that you are a homosexual and may never change you do not admit to the possibility of a double life but if your peace of mind your health and your whole nervous system depend on a certain sexual pattern what can you do Leonard Bernstein is gay culture Yes author yes! Lawrence said that Bernstein was a gay man who got married he wasn't conflicted about it at all he was just gay uh, Shirley Rhodes Pearl, another friend of Bernstein's, said that he required men sexually and women emotionally. Um, and that his marriage was very happy. He and his wife were very happy together and they loved each other genuinely. Uh, he just had liaisons with young men sometimes. Um, and mm. his wife knew about all of them. They were very open and honest with each other. That's beautiful. But yeah, he was like, listen, we'll have three kids. We'll get married and have three kids mostly because I needed to get a job, but I'm gay and sorry about it. And she was like, that's cool. <laughs> so, wow. yeah. Well, tea. Um, tea, I know. So Bernstein was a gay man, which surprising no one, but whatever. That's awesome. Um, uh, so some things I want to like just touch on really quick before we wrap up. It's about what makes him so unique as a composer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole paragraph about what makes him unique as a conductor, but that's not really what I want to focus on in this episode. I know we talked a lot about his conducting and stuff, but that's mm-hmm. a lot of what he did. Um, and actually, uh, he had a lot. He was had a lot of success as a composer, um, but he he had a very similar. We we're again very similar people. Um, to where he was really disillusioned about his more serious pieces because they weren't liked by critics. Um, mm-hmm. And he felt bad that he hadn't been able to devote more time to his composing because he was so busy with conducting and other things that he did. And mm. so he felt like he wasn't a real composer because he didn't devote enough of his life to it. Wow. Um, yeah. And so uh, a lot of his... Um, a lot of criticism of his music comes from the fact that he like 
quote unquote claims he was making new art, but he was just like borrowing bits and pieces from other other composers and fusing elements together. Mm-hmm. But he, in the sixties, he was like, listen, I know I'm haven't been like super devoted to my composition, but like he, he was a very eclectic composer. Um, but you know, he was like, I was, I'm trying to enrich my own personal musical language and I'm trying to do that in the same way that every other composer before me has ever done, which is borrow elements from other people. <laughs> like every composer ever borrows from other people. None of them mm-hmm. just make stuff up. Right. Like that's not. Cloth. Yeah. Like we haven't made stuff up in a thousand years. You know, everything we do is borrowed in the in the Western music scale. There's only 12 notes mm-hmm. like at some points we're going to be copying, you know, and that's the only way you really create is you take, hey, I like this thing and you change it. I mean, I do that with my art all the time. I just wrote a piece um, about a, I, I wrote a piece inspired by the Apollo 11 moon landing and I stole I borrowed a chord progression from Claire de Lune by Debussy. Well, I mean, this very podcast is a testament to that. This was inspired by the format that um, Justin and Sydney use for Sawbones. Absolutely. We're just doing something different. And so I feel like making that criticism is shallow and we should stop doing that because unless you're like directly copying. Right. Like, (laughs) like our good friend. Andrew Lloyd Webber copying Pink Floyd. Uh, mm. <laughs> unless you're directly copying mm. and just changing thing a half step. The furry boy. Uh huh. Um, we'll get to that. We're coming yeah. for you next next time. No, next next time. Yeah, but he Bernstein. I mean, like he was super eclectic, and like all of his music infused jazz and you know traditional jewish music and theatrical music and early composers like gershwin and stravinsky and copeland um and the cool thing about his music is like he super helped bridge the gap between the world of classical and popular especially with west side story because west side story was like people who liked you know rock and roll pop jazz music and the people who were stuck up classical opera people came together and both had this similar interest in West Side Story because it appealed to both of them and also it was Shakespeare like it it hit every mark and that's why it's so well loved now because it's this like universal love story you know with Mm -hmm. this weird eclectic but like super relatable and heartfelt and like his music just fills you up like because he he did a lot of he did a lot of 12 tone music which is where you know rather than doing a normal eight tone scale mm-hmm. he used you know all 12 he, he he did it was a 12 tone scale he used all 12 keys and his music you know it just oh man and the other thing is like he was super rooted in the fact that music should communicate something right and so all of his pieces, including his symphonies and his concert works and like even the pieces he just wrote for piano, he felt that like all of his pieces could be thought of as theatrical in some way or even theater pieces. Like everything he wrote had a story and was trying to communicate something, which is just, uh, he's awesome. I just, I really love him. And I, I had a good time learning about him because he's 
He's a super cool person. And like, I already knew a lot about him, but I didn't know there was this much. <laughs> like, yeah. I had no clue. I mean, you heard me. I'm sitting here editing my document going, oh, this is so much. This is so much. I can't do this. <laughs> well, I mean, you, first off, you did a great job. And second Thank off, you. I mean, like, that's legacy you know like there's only a few like true legends yeah in a generation and he just happened to be his yeah and like it's, it's a i'm a little sad thing. i missed and, it and you know but you know what the real like takeaway i think from all of this um is that uh leonard bernstein's gay and he's ours and sorry bye <laughs> I thought you were going to say something emotional. I intended it. So I think that's as good as place as any to wrap up. Hang on. I think that's as good a place as any to wrap up. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, thank you all for listening. We love you so much and we appreciate you guys for joining us on my extremely long rambles. Um it's something I'm I'm very passionate about and I always forget that I'm passionate about it and then I get to start talking about it and I go, oh yeah, I really like this thing. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for that. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at TinPanDiddlyDoo or our host uh, Twitter, which is at LunarLightHQ or you can follow my personal Twitter, which is BlueSpaceQueen. Mm-hmm. Or my personal Twitter, which is at HeyStews. Um, and you can also find us on our website, which is www.lunarlightstudio.com. Where you can find um, any of the other wonderful shows we have. We got, what you call it, we got Over Which, we got Ending Penning, we got Cryptid Keeper, we got Storyboard. Storyboard, we got, we got Advertising. So we got... Um, yeah, check out, also, we have a new podcast that just came out called Bad Advertising that we do with our good friend Penny Parker. Yes. Uh, where we try to come up with the worst advertisements possible uh, to make products a viral failure. Um, so It's been super fun to do. And like seeing the response from it has been super nice. People are super pumped about it. So if you haven't listened to it yet, please consider checking it out. We had a great time making it. It's a lot shorter than this one. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also... And our- um, yeah, uh, you know, leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, tell uh, tell your mm-hmm. friends about us. Tell your theater troupe about us. Tell mm-hmm. your drama class about us. Tell your drama mm-hmm. teacher about us, but don't tell your mm-hmm. mom. <laughs> or your dad. Or your well, you dad. Well, you can tell your dad. I'm, you sure your dad, your dad. Will, I'm sure your dad don't is Don't tell cool. your mom. Got to put don't a wedge no in their allowed. relationship. This is a no mom Slowly mom's drive own. them apart, and then you can be twisted and messed up like me. Wait, so baby, anyway, no. So anyway, thank you all for listening to Tim. Then you Pan can then you can take your angst and you can channel it into writing a musical like Sweeney Todd. Yeah, be like or cats and steal Pink Floyd music. I wrote. That's why I wrote. Hello, it's me, Andrew Lloyd Webber. I invented a new <laughs> musical. It's called Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> No, it's called it's it's called Phantom of the Opera. It's called The Wall. It's called Phantom of the Opera. It's called Metal. It, it's called Phantom of the Opera. It's called Wish You Were Here. Okay. <laughs> Exit stage right. <laughs> Woo-hoo.